Welcome to Media Path. I'm Fritz Coleman. And I am Louise Palenker. Every week, Weezy and I come together, like Kevin McCarthy and Joe Biden, and we hammer out what we think is the best possible show. And at the last minute, through patience and compromise, we lay it out to you. The final product may not please everyone, but we can promise you there will be no cuts in Social Security or Medicare. It's going to be a fun show. Our most fun thing is to introduce you to fascinating guests. Today, we're going to talk to Howard Fishman. Howard is an author, a musician, composer, guitarist, band leader, and playwright. He's written a fascinating book entitled... To anyone who ever asks, The Life, Music, and Mystery of Connie Converse. This is a great mystery story and a great story about culture and music and uh, uh, a wonderful time in American history, the Greenwich Village folk era and all that kind of stuff. Uh, You'll have a great time listening to Howard in just a few minutes. But first, Wheezy, what do you have for us? First, I'm going to review Drunk History. It's a Comedy Central show. So, you know, and these are my thoughts, okay? In person... Drunk people are only interesting and amusing to other drunk people. But since W.C. Field staggered across a screen or Otis stumbled into Andy's jail cell or an inebriated Lucy attempted to pronounce Vitamita Vegemin, it has been decidedly hilarious to watch the alcoholically impaired commit themselves to completing a specific task within the safety of a screen. We are not responsible for tidying their soil or ensuring their safety. In drunk history, that job belongs to Derek Waters. The high in more ways than one concept of this weirdly addictive show is as follows. Funny folks get plastered and then attempt to relay a fascinating historical tale. Their slurred words are then lip-synced by performers on cheap sets in period garb reenacting the described events. Each episode visits and celebrates a U.S. city, exploring stories which colorfully define it. Here you'll find hilarious performances by Jack Black, Lisa Bonet, Connie Britton, Michael Sarah, Bill Hader, Kevin Nealon, Bob Odenkirk, Winona Ryder, and it, the list just goes on and on. They're depicting figures such as Teddy Roosevelt, Patty Hearst, Billy the Kid, Al Capone, Lewis and Clark, during seminal moments like the Battle of the Alamo, Watergate, and the Scopes Monkey Trial. This is not the most accurate version of history on record. It is the most hilarious. Drunk History is now available on Prime, Hulu, YouTube, and Paramount+. Plus. I recommend binging it completely sober. So how do they know that people are actually drunk? Or do they get them drunk before they perform? They seem to be, uh, you can watch it, Fritz. It seems like they're like a, like a half a bottle in by the yeah, time Derek. Say they pick them up in midstream. Yeah. Oh, okay, well. I mean, there must be a sweet spot. Poor Derek is aiming for it. Because for me, after two glasses of wine, I, you'd be rolling no, me no. you know, around the room. But I, I just, I don't know exactly how they do this safely, honestly. Because safety is, is a, a factor. Idea. You know, alcohol has been the bane of my existence, <laughs> no, and so I'm not so there's, and, they're, and, they, and they're not shy about showing you the repercussions. If people throw up, you know, they just, they, they throw up. It's not oh, glamour. Oh. It's not as glamorous as the title of the show would lend you. Well, to have me. fun, and uh, good. Well, this week, I'm going to talk about the movie Air, streaming right now on Amazon Prime. Air is a biographical sports drama based on the real-life events of Nike and Michael Jordan and how they came together to create the greatest athletic shoe of all time, the Nike Air Retro One. Around 1984, Nike's basketball shoe division was struggling. Matt Damon plays Sonny Vaccaro, the Nike recruiting expert, who recognizes that Michael Jordan, who was still in college at the time, he was a guard at North Carolina, was probably going to be a -a once-in-a-lifetime phenom. So Sonny had to convince the founder of Nike, Phil Knight, played by the film's director, Ben Affleck, that they will have to lay out tons of money they didn't have to throw a Hail Mary to get Jordan to sign with them and not with Converse or Adidas. It's a classic underdog story. It's Affleck and Damon trading crackling barbs like they haven't done since Goodwill Hunting. That was fun to watch. Also, add to that Jason Bateman, who's never not funny, who plays the company's marketing director, and Chris Tucker, who's an ex-player turned company executive. The key player, though, is Michael Jordan's mother, Dolores, played by Viola Davis. She is the power forward in this whole game. (laughs) In a low-key, smooth, and relentless way, she negotiates Michael's deal with Nike. Calmly coming back with Converse counteroffers, totally willing to blow the whole thing up if they don't get what they want. This woman would give Henry Kissinger shivers sitting across the table (laughs) from him. But I think it's a great example of what you see in professional sports, and that is... 
behind every successful athlete, there seems to be a strong, supportive mother. Do you ever notice that? They always pay reference to their mom. They want to buy their mom a house because their mom is responsible and mom, the mom made all the sacrifices. It's a, it's a great story with a powerhouse acting team. I really enjoyed it. Did you well, see it? Yes, I watched it last night. So what you have to think about is that they are children when they reach a point of renown. I mean, people are already watching you when you're 14, 15, 16, you know, because everyone in your town knows, oh, this kid has it. And so the mom is making decisions for the for the child all the way through. And mm-hmm. when they get to that point where they're being drafted, they're still a child. So I think they rely upon that, knowing that I, I need to just play and know that my mom's got these details down. And, you know, you don't know how long an athlete has. So you've got to get this locked. And she did that for him. She got this locked. Of course, he, he went on to greatness, but, you know, he could have blown out a knee the following year. Yeah. And, and she broke a precedent, which was to get Michael a piece of every shoe sold that had never been done before. Never that was the big controversy before. in the film. So it was I great. Mean, we take it for granted, Air Jordan's. But th- they created this template. Mm-hmm. Amazing. All right. Now to our guest, Howard Fishman. Howard is an author, a musician, a composer, a guitarist, a band leader, a playwright. He really is a polymath, just like the woman he writes about in this fascinating story. To anyone who ever asks, the life, music, and mystery of Connie Converse. This is Howard's journey to research the life of Elizabeth Eaton Converse, known as Connie Converse. Connie had a a haunting writing and singing talent. She got close to stardom, but didn't quite make it. And before she could realize the fame she probably deserved, she mysteriously disappeared. Now, Howard, we're so happy to have you here. We have so many questions. There's a lot of mystery surrounding Connie's life that lead you on a 13-year journey to find answers. And, And... Years ago, you heard a recording of her music, and you said this quote in the book, which was so beautiful. The sound was extremely new and at the same time as familiar as my own skin, and you were hooked. So did you set out on your pilgrimage in order to solve the mystery of her disappearance or to get Connie the due you thought she deserved for this amazing music, or both? It was, thanks for having me. Uh, And... It was primarily my mission all along has been to lift her up in her music and her legacy and to draw more attention to the incredible things that she did as a pioneer. Um, I was never interested in uh, solving the mystery of her disappearance. I wasn't trying to write a true crime book. And um, as far as her family was concerned, they were not interested in anyone looking for her. So um the detective story was really about finding her in her own life, because as I always say, Connie Converse had sort of a, a, a superpower that she didn't want, which was she could be invisible and she was invisible throughout most of her life. People couldn't see her uh, in spite of these amazing things that she did. So the detective story wasn't to discover what happened to her after she left, but what happened to her before she left and why did she not receive the recognition she deserved? Mm-hmm. Well, most artists follow a developmental pattern where they imitate before they innovate. And Connie was immediately innovating. You speculate about who may have influenced her, but she only ever she was only ever interested in pushing beyond what she had heard and challenging herself. Talk about her work and how remarkable it was within the time frame that it was created. Yeah. That's right. I, I, in the book, I, I never make any assumptions about anything I don't know. And I don't I can't say for certain who her musical influences were mm-hmm. when I if there is any kind of speculation that's involved. It's just based on what I hear from my own ears in her music. Uh, and I hear traces of what's now known as early Americana. So early jazz, early blues, country, hillbilly, gospel, um, you said the, Jimmy Rogers and the Carter family might have been there. I certainly hear Jimmy Rogers and the Carter family in Connie Converse's music. If, if if I found out that she had never listened to either of them, I would be astounded. Um, in fact, I, I would say she probably spent a lot of time with their with their music, both the Carters and Jimmy Rogers. Mm-hmm. It'd be interesting to have found her record collection, right? It would be fascinating. Yeah. Um, because these days we can we can dial up any of those people at any time, yeah. and uh, their music is easily accessible. 
when Connie Converse was growing up in the 30s and 40s, it would have been very difficult for her to track down that music on 78 recordings. And um, to assimilate that music the way that she did, I, I don't think that, it's my opinion anyway, that she doesn't copy them in any way. But I just hear the ghosts of their the music that they made in hers. Mm -hmm. But you're right. She was an innovator from the get-go. We don't hear in her songs, or at least I don't hear in her songs, imitations of other people at all. I hear Connie Converse from right out of the gate. Yeah. You know, there's a great universal story in your quest and her music, and that is, and this town is full of them, you know, desperately talented, undiscovered talent that through fate or... Uh, you know, self-destruction or not being discovered at the right moment or bad timing. They just never get what they're due. So it's really easy to empathize with her position. But I, I was very touched by the moment, the first moment you heard her music and how you responded to it and what set you off on this pilgrimage. So talk about the first time. What were the circumstances where you heard Connie Converse's music the first time and, and your reaction? Connie Converse's music was released for the first time commercially in 2009. And these are recordings that she made in the 50s and their home recordings. Uh, they were discovered and preserved in a filing cabinet that she left behind. Uh, her brother had them digitized and that album came out in 2009. Um, for a while, I had people telling me about her before I had actually heard her music. I had people, friends whose tastes I trust say, Oh, you've got to check out Connie Converse. And they told me the story about her, that she was this person who had never made it. And that one day she disappeared, never to be seen again. And I sort of dismissed it because I thought it was a, a hoax. I thought it was probably a publicity stunt. Um, and it wasn't until I was at a holiday party in 2010 when I heard this song that stopped me in my tracks. And I asked the host of the party who it was. And he said, oh, that's Connie Converse. And I thought, okay, this is the person that everybody's been telling me about. And yes, now I understand. I need to go home and do some homework and figure out who this person is because it didn't seem possible to me that somebody this talented could have gone under the radar for so long. Uh, and I needed to discover why that, why that was. And you did. You, 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 your book is absolutely beautiful. Your writing is, is really elegant and thoughtful and introspective and, and it's just it really i listened to the audio book i was going back and forth between the kindle and the and the audible but then i realized on the on the audible you get you play samples of the music so i for the remainder of the book i stuck with the with the audible and you know your your voice is extraordinary in, in reading the book so I, i'm going to recommend if you're listening to this podcast to listen to the audio version of the book uh, Connie was extraordinarily gifted and could have been successful creatively and financially in a number of fields. She was a groundbreaking person, always interested in what was coming next. And the, the picture that you paint is that it's not just her music that was lost, but that she was lost. Do you, do you believe that she was unable to acclimate to her time or to societal expectations of any time? As a musician, I think she had two primary challenges. She was a woman that was trying to succeed in a male-dominated society that wanted women performers to either be vixens or virgins, mm -hmm. and she fit into neither of those categories. Um, the other main obstacle that she had was she was making music that had no context. Um, the music that she made, if we hear it now, it doesn't sound, it sounds like it could be made today or it certainly sounds like music that could have been made 40 years ago, but not in the 1950s, nobody was making music like this. And so she was trying to, um, she was trying to do something that nobody really understood that there was no market for yet. And the people that were in the business of marketing music didn't know what to do with her. So they did nothing with her. You made some really interesting comments about that in your book uh, where it's impossible to mark some, uh, market something that you can't categorize. And she was really uh, sort of in her own little uh, world that way. Also, she was sort of, we'll plug her in uh, just 
for historical purposes, into the Greenwich Village folk scene. Well, you also made this interesting comment that a folk, pure folkies thought that nobody should write a new folk song. They should just play the songs that were written historically. And she was uh, really one of the first singer-songwriters and wanted to write her own songs, and people rejected that. That's right. When Connie Converse was making music, if you were a folk singer, you sang traditional songs. You sang songs that had no known author and no known composer. And um, you didn't write, if, if you wrote your own song, it wasn't a folk song. So today we think of folk songs and folk singers um, as people who write original music. And the, the term is often interchangeable with singer-songwriter. But um, I, there was no folk scene in the 50s in which people were writing original music. So she it's kind of hard to put her into that into that uh, context because it, she was doing something very different, which was writing original music. Lou went on a deep exploration into her life and childhood, and because she's, she's not an extremely historical figure, she existed in a time period where everything was written, things were written, uh, there's letters that have been saved there are people who knew her so you had a lot to pull from and you talked to everyone that you could find exhaustively and, and found some things that i'm sure were surprising uh to you so tell us a little bit about her childhood and what you discovered uh, about her personality and sort of the roots of who she was you know, she she had an extremely religious upbringing. They did not listen to secular music. You know, these types of factors I think people will find interesting. Sure. Yeah. And the reason that one of the reasons this book took me as long as it did to write is because when I began researching Connie Converse, there was it's not like there were articles written about her or contemporaneous reviews of of, of her music or footage that I could go back to of her performing. Um, everything I had to find was not anything that I found was not on the internet. Right. I, I had to, I had to knock on doors. I had to read old letters. I had to read through diaries. I had to make telephone calls. Um, I had to travel to places where she lived. And so the assembling of this miraculous person's life, uh, was a little bit different. As you say, she was it's not as though she's really a historical figure. Uh, it's not as though I'm. I was writing a biography of Bessie Smith. Um, so, yeah. Uh, but to get specifically to your question, yes, she grew up in a, what I think a lot of us would think of as a repressive, uh, in a repressive household in New Hampshire, in Concord, New Hampshire. Her father was head of the Anti-Saloon League uh, and crusaded for prohibition in the years leading up to it and continued to crusade for uh, abstinence, um, alcohol abstinence even after it was repealed. Uh, her mother was uh, uh, played piano at the church and taught at the, at the church. And yes, uh, secular music was not allowed in the house. Dancing was not allowed in the house. Um, it, it, was a, it was a very strict sort of classic New England upbringing. And I think that really stamped itself on her consciousness. And I think as uh, her brother Phil told me, um, neither of them could could uh, wait to get the hell out of Concord as soon as they graduated high school. And part of that uh, repressive upbringing was she never discussed sex. She didn't learn anything about sex from her parents. They never discussed it. So that secret sexuality became part of her personality and left great questions about who or what she was and who she had relationships with later on in her life. Yeah, that's a complicated subject and one that I try in my book to uh I try in the book to just adhere basically to what people told me and what she herself wrote um, without, without getting into any kind of speculation about it. Uh, but it, it does seem that according to a letter that she wrote uh, a few years before her disappearance, that um, nobody ever taught her the facts of life, mm -hmm. uh, that um, she was maybe confused about um, what, a, what a healthy sexual life meant. And certainly, uh, what one of the things I discovered is that she had clandestine lovers and affairs, um, sometimes with married men throughout her life. Although never had a proper, you know, proper um, relationship 
with either a man or a woman that we know of. It's also possible that the kids were exposed to something unhealthy in terms of sexual awakening happening on one's own timeline. It seems like the brothers, well, at least Paul was maybe over-sexualized and that some unhealthy unhealthiness was going on in that household, but it's hard to know. It's hard to know. Again, I just tried to report what people told me. Um, Connie Converse had a cousin named Edie Converse, uh, who in her 90s uh, told me over the telephone her memories of, of Paul, Connie Converse's older brother, and the fact that she didn't feel safe around him and that he was obsessed mm-hmm. with sex. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yes, it's, um, I mean, every family has its own skeletons, and uh, it seems that the Converses had had their own. Um, I can't draw any conclusions um, other than to say that there was some discomfort in the Converse family around the topic of sex. And the only reason I brought it up was it, it seems like uh, she had imperfect relationships with men and women, but also she sought perfection in her relationships through the fantasy of her writing. It seemed like she was always writing about a, uh, a fantasy man and creating a beautiful, loving relationship with a person she'd never met. Am I right about that? It seems like a lot of her writing was in that direction. Because forget her music. Her poetry was spectacular. Her, all, all the songs were very poetic and very lovely on top of their great music. Yes. Thank you for saying that. And you make a great point about this. Often the subject of her songs does involve a fantasy lover of some kind. Uh, a fantasy lover uh, with whom she cannot connect or who is elusive in some way, or mm-hmm. has spurned her in some way, or she's waiting for her in some way. Um, yes, I think that's very true. When we talk about the way that she would construct her songs that was innovative and surprising, you know, in many ways, you know, she, the last chapter of her story, her known story, ends on an unresolved chord, which is maybe feels very specifically by design. Do you feel like it's supposed to remain that way? I think it is. And I think you're absolutely right. I think that the song of Connie Converse's life ends the way a lot of her songs do on an, in an unexpected way. And I do think that that was the last that she wanted anybody to know about her. Um, whether that was actually the end of her life or not is anybody's guess. You know, she was a uh, she was a paradox. She, she seemed to want fame. She wanted people to appreciate her music. She was uh, socially awkward and not self-promoting enough to try to make that happen. For instance, that ill-fated experience on, with Walter Cronkite. And she never really performed in the clubs, right? She performed in these salons that were put on by friends and admirers. And so she, she was sort of known in that environment, but never uh, because she was, I don't want to say socially awkward, but she just didn't have that self-promotional gene required a little bit of most people that make it. Well, I think that Connie Converse was a uh, her primary, again, I, I, I don't want to speculate here and speak for her, but having spent 13 years thinking about this person, I think I can safely say that she, for her music, the primary uh, aim for her, for her music was for her to be understood and to be known and to express herself. Mm-hmm. Fame and success, I think, were secondary to those things. Um, so I think she, I think it's fair to say that she would have liked to have been able to support herself as a professional musician. But I think it's also fair to say that she was only willing to do that on her own terms and was not willing to sell out by dumbing down her music or by becoming somebody that she didn't want, she didn't feel was authentic to who she really was. Mm-hmm. And a lot of artists will go, well, you know, they will play that game or play a lot of games of doing something commercial so that once they have reached a certain level of success, they can then say, you know, like Willie Nelson is a good example of this. Like he really tried to do the Nashville thing really hard. And then once he established himself, you know, after moving to Texas, uh, he was able to then say to the labels, I'm going to make this next record. And there'd be a little bit of pushback, but, you know, 
That's the game that most artists play. You know, you're you're an artist, but attaining creative success requires that an artist be more than an artist. They need to also be resilient, strategic, engaging, collaborative, plucky, resourceful, problem-solving, business-oriented, etc. At least surround themselves with people that can fill in, you know, where they're where they have some weak spots. And I I, I don't think that Connie was interested in being any anything other than self-contained and doing it like as you said on, on her terms could that could that have been what was in her way well it certainly is we could we could speculate about that for sure i mean um she was not interested in playing the game in, in any way it doesn't seem and um i completely admire that you know in her but i also understand why it, it could have held her back she also uh, was somebody who's, I don't know how to express this delicately, her, her physical presentation was not important to her. She had, many people would say, hygiene issues, you know, uh, needed dental work, and all those things that w- made her this sort of, and I wondered if it was a psychological thing with her as a way of keeping people away do you know what I mean? Is there any is there any truth in what I'm thinking there, or am I missing it? It just seemed like she 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 was on her own body clock as well as her own psychic clock there. Well, I think I think I say early on in the book, and I certainly say it at the end, that for me the Connie Converse story is one that's mostly questions, and not answers. Mm-hmm. Uh, so even though I've written five hundred some pages about this person and hopefully have presented a a picture of her that is compelling in some respects. It's the questions that you're asking right now that I think people will continue to ask because we just don't have answers for them. Mm -hmm. Um, But her life and the choices that she made are so consistently unusual and unpredictable and head scratching that it invites us to, to wonder and to have these kinds of conversations. So I don't think you're wrong by asking them, but I, I, I also can't answer them myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that y- when you read the book or when you listen to the audio book, you, your mind drifts off to people that you know mm. with similar characteristics and or to yourself. You know, I, I think it's it's really instructive in terms of, you know, what do you want out of life? Or like, you know, kind of inspiring the questions like, what do I want out of life? Am, am I willing to make these sacrifices to achieve it? Or is it just better to have a job, support myself, and have peace of mind, but do this as a passion project, you know, on my own terms? You know, those are the questions, some of many questions yeah. that are raised, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, I think we all do the best we can at any given time with what we have at our disposal. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um, I am sitting right now in uh, in my house in Connecticut, and... Um, I could have put on a jacket and tie and I could have situated, Mm -hmm. I could have situated myself in front of a more appealing sort of background, uh, and, um, presented myself in a way that maybe would be, um, uh, more helpful in terms of, um, I don't know, uh, appealing to the, uh, to the viewers of, of this program. No, um, sir, you're right where you need to be. Well, We're gonna, people I, are going to be ordering that, that shirt after they listen to this. I, <laughs> I could have done any of these things, and, and I might have had I had the bandwidth to do it, but I've, I've had an incredibly busy day, um, and there have been other things that have been priorities for me, Not which isn't to say that this isn't a priority, but the priority for me here, just as Connie Converse's priority was making music, my priority is to have a conversation conversation with you guys and to engage about ideas. And if I don't look absolutely my best and have the best background going on while I do that, that's not the main, that's not the reason that I'm here. So I'm sort of making the, um, uh, I don't know if it's the assumption or I'm, I'm hoping that people that are listening or watching this will forgive those things about me because the most important thing is the conversation. So maybe we could guess the same thing about Connie Converse. 
That's a good analogy. There's nothing for you to ask forgiveness for. We all wish we were in that beautiful house in Connecticut with that great fireplace in back of you. Well, yeah, but you see the chipping paint behind me. Oh, and well, you no, see no. Faded prints, this faded Van no, Gogh that's just called, the- That's called the distressed look, and it's yeah. very popular. We- Weezy said that your writing was elegant, and I agree with that. And it also comes from the, uh, the soul of a musician. Uh, which uh, helped you to analyze her music and explain it to your readers really beautifully where it fits into the zeitgeist about music. But talk about your own career. You you play many instruments. You've uh, run your own bands. Talk about your career a little bit. Well, uh, of course, I'm happy to do that, but I don't want to take attention away from Connie Converse. Um, no, I just want to give people the, the, the credibility that you bring to writing this amazing book about this amazing oh, artist. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Well, uh, very briefly, uh, I began my career in New Orleans playing in the streets down there in the mid-90s. And then um, I moved up to New York and uh, spent um, the years before starting writing this book, uh, leading various ensembles, putting out albums, touring the country and the world, um, and writing and composing composing and arranging music. And uh, I... I I do think that probably there is some of that that comes through in my appreciation and understanding of Connie Converse because, uh, as you guys have said, I I do know what it takes to be a professional musician, and I can understand some of those challenges that she went through. I find your analysis of her music really interesting and enlightening as well. Uh, Let me ask you this. Um, I, I don't know that this is an issue in her life, but since there's an hereditary aspect of mental illness, you know, her brother Paul, her older brother, had mental illness. She had some mental illness and other of her extended family. Do you think any of that played into the quirkiness of her personality and her character or uh, how she was perceived by people? Well, uh, for one thing, I'm not a professional uh, and uh, professional mental health um, person. And for another thing, we can't diagnose somebody who is no longer here. Uh, so even if I were, I, 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 I talked to um, people in the mental health world uh, who, who told me that very thing. They said, well, yes, she has these various earmarks of various kinds of conditions, but she's not here, so we can't diagnose her. Mm-hmm. Um, it does seem that she was... Um, maybe you know what is today called neurodivergent in in many ways so that would um, be an autism spectrum i think it i think it's a kinder maybe more evolved way of of saying autism spectrum today okay. um, but she certainly did things differently yeah. uh than what many of us would consider normal whatever that means right she she had her own approach, but she you know she was wickedly funny. She was she was brilliant. Uh, and talk for a moment about some of her other accomplishments because you go into you go into it in the book that she was capable on on many fronts of extremely innovative thinking. Yes, that's true. Uh, before she began songwriting, she was writing and thinking and editing uh, pieces about. Uh, international relationships in the Far East. Um, While she was songwriting, she was also uh, cartooning, uh, painting, drawing, writing poetry, working on a novel. Uh, She got into statistics and game theory. And after she left New York and and, uh, gave up her musical ambitions, she became fiercely um, uh, devoted to fighting war and racism in this country. And that's how she spent the last 14 years or so Str- of her life. Strong political activism. And uh, uh, you talk about that in the book, too. So she had her passions over and above the music. Uh, Connie Converse, I think it's fair to say, never had a boring moment in her life. Um, this was a person who was endlessly fascinated by everything and wanted to learn as much as there was to learn about anything that she could. Tell us about what you discovered along the way talking to folks, and you really traveled the globe looking looking for answers. Tell us about what, the moments where you went, oh, wow, 
this is interesting. The whole thing was oh wow. Really? Every moment was oh wow. Um, Is there something specific that you're thinking about from the book, or that? I think it's Prague. Uh huh. (laughs) Those conversations with uh, is it Geich? Gene Deitch. Gene Deitch. Deitch. Sorry. Yes. Talk talk about that. Well, Gene Deitch is the guy who made a lot of those recordings that are on the album How Sad, How Lovely, which is the compilation of her 1950s era home recordings. And uh, Gene Deitch had a section of his website devoted to Connie Converse, a a page or so, um, talking about how he met her and came to record her. And he was still alive when I was doing my research and um, was not very interested in talking with me because he said that everything there was to know about him and Connie Converse was on his website, which was, I, I was certain that there was more than that and that he was just being a bit dodgy. So it took my saying that I would come to Prague to talk with him. He was living in Prague where he'd been living since the late 50s. Uh, and I flew there and met him in a courtyard um, where he talked about himself for three hours <laughs> and um, and then said, well, maybe we can continue tomorrow. And I said, that, w- that was fine because I wanted to make him comfortable and I was interested in anything he had to say. But later that night, I, I received an email from him saying, uh, I've said all I have to say about Connie Converse, goodbye or good luck or something like that. And that and and there was no second meeting, no no conversation about Connie Converse. So I got some of my questions in, but um, yes, that was a moment of feeling. Uh, I, I wouldn't say that that was necessarily a wow moment so much as a, um, a a disappointing moment that somebody who's so central to the story sort of. Uh, absolved himself of having that much importance to it. Well, it just felt to me like, you know, you go all the way to Prague to talk about Connie Converse, and as soon as he realizes that this is not really in support of me, he's no longer interested. Like, he went on that radio show and played some of some of Connie's music, which we learned at the end of the book, the whole origin story. But it, it felt like he, he was more interested in himself having discovered her than in actually in her. I mean, I don't want to disparage Gene Deitch. I mean, his his uh, role in the Connie Converse story is unimpeachable. He was there to record her. He did bring her song one by one onto David Garland's show in 2004, which is what led to the 2009 release of her album. Um, it is unfortunate that for whatever reason, he did not want to talk more about her um, when I went to interview him. Um, but... Uh, people are people, you know, and um, maybe he was having a bad day. I, I don't want to guess the reasons why he he didn't want to talk more about her. Um, but clearly, he knew the significance of what he had done, and he wanted to lay claim to that, which mm-hmm. is fair. And also, as I say in the book, I think in some ways, we I was given a glimpse at maybe what she was up against in the fifties, because here was her, as he called it, her greatest champion back then. Uh, according to him, he, he uh, spent uh, endless hours promoting her and her music to anybody who would listen, trying to get her fame and, and attention. And yet this was, um, and yet I saw this, the, the sort of personality that was behind those activities. And I, I have the feeling that maybe she didn't have the right kinds of champions back then. Uh, he was one of two big champions. The other was Bill Bernal, correct? Yeah. That was important. And those are the guys that had these salons where the the small core of Connie fans would come over and over again and listen to her concerts, and they recorded her there, and they were her uh, biggest champions. But that's sort of, uh, that was the peak of her performances, was those those little salons. Who, who was Bill Bernal and what was he to her? That's correct. Bill Bernal and Gene Deitch actually met out there in Los Angeles uh, when they were young men. They were uh, they they bonded over a shared love of old jazz 78s, hunting them down and playing them for each other. And later, when they both moved to New York, uh, they continued a practice that they started in Los Angeles, which was to invite friends over for these salon evenings where they would spin old rare records 
and sometimes have musicians come and perform. And that was the context in which Connie Converse made her splash, such as it was in Hastings on Hudson in 1954 in Gene Deitch's living room. What's really interesting to me is that the, the, I don't know if this is the power of her poetry or the power of her music, but you interviewed people who hadn't seen or heard from her in 50 years and hadn't heard her music, but they remembered the lyrics to her songs, which Isn't is pretty impressive. Wait, uh, let me just ask you, are you sure that's not the bootlegs? I just I can't believe that someone can remember those intricate lyrics after one listen. And then you talk about the bootlegs that were going around. I am in as much disbelief as you are. <laughs> okay. However, when I, I called these people up and I mentioned the name Connie Converse, they said, oh, my God. Yes, of course I remember Connie Converse. I haven't thought of her since, you know, whatever it was, 1953, 1954. And uh, two separate uh, sets of individuals, the, uh, Fred and Julia Crippen and then Merle Edelman on two separate calls – both started reciting lyrics to me, singing lyrics to me from her songs. Wow. And I said to them, how is it that you know these songs? Because, correct me if I'm wrong, you, you haven't thought about Connie Converse since the 50s, right? And they said, no. And I said, well, you, there is a compilation of her recordings. Have you heard that? No, we didn't even know it existed. And so I asked them, how is it that you can possibly remember a song that you haven't heard in 60 years. Come on, that's crazy. And they insisted that the song, in each uh, instance, it was a, a different song. With one of them, it was the Playboy of the Western World. With the other, it was Talking Like You. But they all insisted that the song made such an impact on them that after only hearing it two or three times 60 years ago, they could still remember the, the lyrics in the song. Who owns her catalog? Does she have an uh, estate? I mean, she uh, has an estate. Oh. Yeah, she has an estate. Can, can you? I, I assume you've read Tim's review in Amazon. Uh, Tim Converse's review. Yeah. What does he say? Oh, you haven't read it. No. Okay. <laughs> you read it and then give me a call. So basically, <laughs> he is he, he's an excellent writer. But his thoughts are that you were perhaps a little bit uh, assertive in terms of attempting to research this project to where maybe he felt, I think he uses the word bullied or, uh, or guilt or you know words of that nature to get information from what would have then been a nine or 10 year old child and asking repeatedly why he doesn't remember something like the color of her countertop or something like that uh, so he he gives it three he he's very very glowing about the writing and that work that you did but he gives it three every every other review is solid five stars but he just felt like you were a little bit too hard on him in terms of attempting to get him or encourage him to remember things and questioning, uh -huh. questioning why he and his brother remembered things differently, especially around around her disappearance, et cetera. Yeah, uh, there were lingering questions for me uh, that were never resolved uh, about the accounts concerning the accounts of, of uh, um, some of the members of the Converse family. Um, and I say as much in the book. Um, beyond that, I think I think I probably shouldn't say anything more. Mm hmm. Right. Yeah, it shows up as the first review. And it, it's just interesting because I, you know, I've made a documentary. So I understand the relationship between someone documenting a family and the, a member of the family. I, I mean, I, I know that very, very, very well. You know, family members see something in your in your work that's far different than the, what the reader, you know, will see. They're not able to distance themselves from your words or your version of the story, they will see us continuously as an outsider, you know, infiltrating, you know, their personal private family life and attempting to make it intriguing. And, you know, his response is, I think, in alignment with other family members that have been documented or written about. Everyone has their version of their own family history. I think he'll be ultimately thrilled that you accounted, 
you know, that you wrote this and that it's do- been documented. It's his aunt who he loved, you know, but his immediate reaction is a personal one, you know, as we all would be if someone walked into your life and started writing the life story of your uncle, you know, you'd have. Yeah, this. I completely empathize with that. And if, if somebody came into my life and wanted to write about a member of my family and was badgering me with questions all the time, I probably wouldn't like it either. Um, I do hope that the Converse family um, will come to feel, if they don't already, that uh, what I told them all along, that my only intention here was to celebrate Connie Converse's life and legacy. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, the book is nothing but a, but a, uh, but a, a treating her with great sensitivity and out, out of a place of respect uh, the, the whole book and and it's it's even for people not connected with the family there's there's no way you could mistake that reading this book thank you thank you so uh, yes there were at times frustrations where i felt that uh, there were members of the family that could have been a bit more forthcoming um but I think that's all, as you say, I think that's par for the course for anybody that's doing any kind of research like this. There's going to be family members that don't like it. And um, as I say, I can only hope that if they don't already, they will in time come to come to understand that this was a, a labor of love for me and all about uh, celebrating Connie Converse. When, when you first held the book in your hand, did you feel... A, a sense of connection with Connie that, you know, you had done this for her and, and feel some pride surrounding that? Because I, I th- just think it's an enormous achievement. And, uh, yeah. Thank you. That's very meaningful to hear. Um, Let me add something uh, to that before you sure, uh, sure. weep openly. <laughs> Do you think that you were on a pilgrimage to find Connie and in her songs, she was on a pilgrimage to find you. You were the un- unstated lover that she didn't have. You understood her. You appreciated her talent. You were who she was longing for in his songs because of time and fate you two never met. It seemed like you were sort of this cosmic duo that could never quite connect but pass one another in the universe somehow. Well, that's lovely of you to say, but I, I, I would say to that that I think that anybody who hears her music and connects with it sees themselves on the other side of that equation. And I think that's what makes her music so beautiful and mysterious and, and, and uh, th- that makes us connect with it so much because we, as I say in the book, it's almost as though we fancy ourselves to be the person that she was looking for but couldn't find. Mm-hmm. So... Um, that's I, I love the way that you put that. Thank you. Or, and, or, and, or yeah, sorry. Go ahead. Or were that person longing to be heard and understood? Where you know we could be Connie. You know, just mm-hmm. not yes. figuring out the right. How, what's the message I need to send to find somebody who gets me? And yeah, yeah, yes. And and I think that many of us. Uh, at some point in our lives, we'll feel disconnected and at sea and that we don't belong. And I think I was feeling that profoundly in 2010 um, when I heard Connie Converse's music for the first time. And it just caught me in that moment where I, it was like I was seized by her and her music and at, almost like you say, you know, feeling like, oh, here's the other side of the equation for me. Here's what I've been missing in my life. Here's, hmm. here's the thing that makes me belong. Now, it, to me, it seems like at some point when this is turned into a movie, that it should chronicle your path alongside Connie's, you know, as you go in search of her path, because your life continues during those 13 years. You lived your life and had your journey. And it must have been informed, you know, every step of the way by your connection with Connie and your and your searching for her. Do you can you look back on that time period and see where they were being informed by each other or for sure. 
for sure. And and I had moments where I felt um, the presence of something that I didn't quite understand that was just guiding me uh, on this on this journey. I want to save uh, a little time uh, since we're fairly close to the end, Howard, to talk about the the mystery part of this, her disappearance. As Wheezy had mentioned before, she composed Cassandra, which is her major piece of work that she seemed to compose as her last, what you could consider her major work. And then uh, she typed a farewell letter, and the letter is titled, I guess for the date, it was written 81074. So talk a little about her disappearance and where she was and what were the circumstances leading up to it. Well, as I say in the book, there are a lot of conflicting uh, reports about exactly what happened leading up to her disappearance. And I just try to uh, report them all, uh, everything that was told to me, and sort of let the reader think along with me about what these puzzle pieces could add up to. But what we, uh, what we do know is that Leading up to August 1974, Connie Converse uh, seemed to be out of work, out of money, um, lacking a direction for what to do next. Uh, she seemed to have a, 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 an alcohol um, dependency. She was smoking three or four packs of cigarettes a day uh, by... Um, uh, evidence of pictures of her at that time. She seemed to be not in good shape physically, uh, overweight and, and not looking so good um, in terms of the, her, I don't know, just a, some, one, of, one of her friends uh, mentioned that her skin didn't look good and her eyes didn't look good and lo- it looked like she was falling apart. So Connie Converse did not disappear on the wings of glory. Uh, she was at a at a at a bottom however what happened after she disappeared is anybody's guess because um we just don't know she was never heard from again her body was never found her car was never found is it possible that she took her own life and the only reason i say that is there's a clue she had a best friend for a while flint who was also herself a quite a beautiful writer. I mean, her letters and her communications were wonderful. She committed suicide, and Connie was the first to defend that act and to excuse her for it and almost support her in that act. And I thought, ooh, is that foreshadowing of something to come later? Well, it it could be. It it could also be something that Phil Converse wanted people to think about uh, for whatever reason. Um, It was a story that Phil Converse repeated on many occasions, uh, bringing up this childhood friend of hers who had committed suicide. Did Connie Converse kill herself? It, that's what Phil Converse thought. Um, and she may have, or she may have just, she Connie Converse disappeared several times in her life. It's just that the final time, we don't know what happened to her next, but she disappeared from Mount Holyoke. She disappeared from New York City. She took long cross-country trips during which her, her whereabouts were not known for long lengths of time. Um, and then she disappeared from Ann Arbor. And who knows? She could be 98 years old right now, living somewhere. Could you tell the story of when you were driving and you just happened to pull over? <laughs> yeah. This was yes. the jaw-dropping jaw for me. Yes, I was uh, taking a little break from working on the book to go up to Mass Mocha in the Berkshires for Wilco's Solid Sound Festival. There you go. Which was featuring the uh, one-time reunion of the Shags, um, a group that had not performed since the mid-1970s. And, uh, yeah, I was dry, I, I, as I often do, I set my uh, phone navigator to avoid highways and uh so i was taking the blue the blue roads the blue highways up to um massachusetts which was about a four-hour drive instead of a two-hour drive from where i was in connecticut and so i was going along all these windy roads and through these little towns and uh, the the only thought i had on my way up there was at some point i was going to stop at a farm stand uh and pick up some maple syrup um because new england maple syrup is good 
And that's something I like to do on summer drives in New England. Hmm. So I passed who knows how many farm stands and uh, for whatever reason didn't stop. But then I realized, oh, I'm actually getting closer to my destination. So the next one I see, I should probably stop at. And I stopped and I got out of the car and I looked above the car windshield where I where I pulled over and there was a street sign that said Converse Cemetery. Wow. And I went over a, across the road to the farm stand after I'd been standing there with my mouth open for who knows how long. <laughs> and I <laughs> I asked the guy what the what the Converse Converse Cemetery was and he said he didn't know much about it but that he went in there sometimes to clean up and it was a private cemetery and I went in there and there were Connie Converse's relatives some of them anyway from the 1700s and 1800s buried in this very small little private plot and I you know what are the chances what are the yeah. odds that that's all uh, the- that's divine intervention yeah that's yeah. divine for sure <laughs> yeah yeah it's just the weirdest thing maybe that's ever happened to me in my life for sure what's next what's the next 13 year pilgrimage uh <laughs> i don't think it's gonna i don't think i can i have enough time left to do multiple 13 year projects from here on in so i'm gonna try to make them shorter from here but i think the next thing is uh writing a uh an essay or two for the new yorker and uh, getting into the recording studio to make a, a new album because I've got a bunch of songs that have that want to get out there into the Well, world. you're a great writer. Th- this this book is going to be interesting to people who um, uh, pr- appreciate the beauty and uh, the creativity of undiscovered artists of any kind. It uh, comes from the viewpoint of a talented musician, and it's a great uh, mystery at the end, and it's family issues that everybody has there's you know quirky relatives and interesting brilliant people in the dark corners of each family i think everybody will find it interesting it was a great read and and i i i agree with wheezy's suggestion which is to listen to it on tape oh because of uh because you get to sample her beautiful voice and even though they're salon recordings meaning somebody's living room they're they're pretty the quality's pretty good I think they're, they're, the quality is great. Yeah. I mean, it's her, her and her voice and her guitar, and that's it. What else do we need? Uh, Howard, our, our producer, Dina, would like to ask you a question. Sure thing. Hi, Howard. I don't know if you can see me. Can Howard I see cannot, me, Thomas? But okay. I can hear you. Well, I can see you, and you can hear me. Um, so thank you so much for joining us today. And I just wanted to ask you really quickly, before we wrap up the interview, um, on the song talking like you which i believe is the first song on how sad how lovely the 2009 album um that came out of connie's recordings um there can you talk a little bit about the significance of the little lyric um there's a squirrel thing and why that's such an interesting lyric for the time um that connie was writing and recording her music sure yeah i'm i mean as i say in the book i heard that uh, lyric up that tree there's sort of a squirrel thing <laughs> sounds just like we did when we were quarreling and to me it did not it sounded like somebody today i mean it sounded like uh somebody in their 20s today or teens even saying a squirrel thing that doesn't sound like somebody writing in the 1950s and to me it, it my first hunch was that the whole thing was a hoax and that this was somebody singing today who had created a character named connie converse yeah, that's so. Yeah, she just threw convention to a corner of the room and like only glanced at them occasionally because she had her own thing to say and her own way of putting putting words together and interesting rhymes and and metaphors and images uh, all her own that that speak to all of us. All right, I want you to go to Amazon and look for uh, Howard's book. And so tell us where else people should go online uh, other than where I'm pointing them, Howard. Oh, you can buy it from anywhere that sells books. And um, I, I love to buy my books from independent bookstores. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can also find it uh, on Audible as an audiobook on Kindle, etc. cetera. Um, yeah, all those places that are being shown now on the screen. Uh, but... I, I want to thank you guys so much for for inviting me and for highlighting this book and for bringing attention to Connie Converse 
this amazing, amazing human being. It's a fascinating story, Howard. Congratulations on a great piece of work. Yeah, just a celebration of humanity. And uh, we're so appreciative of all the work that you put in to bring this to us. Thank you. And here come your closing credits. Thank you so much for joining us. We would love to continue this conversation with you on Instagram and Twitter, where we are at Media Path Pod, and on Facebook, where our show page is Media Path Podcast, and our Facebook group is Media Path with Fritz and Wheezy Podcast Community. You can find full video podcast episodes loaded with bonus visual content on our YouTube channel, Media Path Podcast. You can write to us at Media Path Podcast at gmail.com. If you enjoy this show, please give us a nice rating in Apple Podcasts and talk about us on social media. You can sign up for our saucy rag of a newsletter at mediapathpodcast.com. We want to thank our wonderful guest, Howard Fishman. And before I mention all of the cast members, Fritz is going to talk about his one-man show. I'd like to take just a second for some shameless self-promotion. Yes, please. I would like to drive everybody to Tubi to see my new comedy special about the beauty, the joy, the euphoria of getting old called Unassisted Living. It's Advertiser-supported streaming video on demand. It's free. Just type my name in. It'll pop up immediately after a beautiful but brief commercial. And I hope you enjoy it. Yes, please. It's sensational. Fritz is the funniest man, I think, in, in the entire United States. Maybe some parts of Canada. <laughs> We're checking into it. Our team includes Dina Friedman, John Maddox, Bill Filippiak, Thomas Hubble, Mason, Gra- Mason Brown, Laurie DeWall, Garrett Arch, Nick Broussard, and you. Our theme music is by me and John Maddox. I am Louise Palenker here with Fritz Coleman. Be well and wise, and we will see you along the media path.